Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation 21.1 through 22.5. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 fountains, foundations, and on them were in the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, and its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase. The eleventh jaseth and the twelfth was amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the, for the healing of all nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have some really awesome neighbors. They are not only amazingly fun, they are actually, well, let's just say budding theologians. Uh, we asked them recently, what will heaven be like? And this was their response. Judah, who's totally awesome, age four, said this. Heaven is like a party with lots of angels. Everyone will give me presents and Legos and I will eat a yummy birthday cake. Faith, who is age six, said this. It is like the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. 
We are kind to one another. The angels are playing trumpets and lots of fun stuff. REH8 said this, it's like a big party with a feast. The angels are singing, everyone is happy and giving gifts to another. Noah, who is age nine, said this, there will be a big feast. Everyone is kind to one another. Nobody will be getting sick <laughs> like this. There will be no bad viruses or germs. And then he adds, Jesus is teaching us and reading the Bible. Now, I think they have a lot of insight, don't you? What will heaven be like? You know, it's a really important question for all of us to ask. And let me just say right away, this question tells us that we don't have a complete understanding of that. We don't have a complete answer. But we can be confident, I think, that our joyful heavenly home will be like our best moments in life, our best relationships, our best pleasures now, but only much, 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 much better. Something I think we can count on is heaven will be without the downward gravitational pull of sin and evil of this present world. Now, I have never experienced life without gravity. Fred Best, who is an astronaut, describes what it's like in zero gravity worlds. He says this, the feeling is completely different from being on a roller coaster. It is more like motionlessness than movement. He says, I feel great in zero gravity, either floating in place or flying through space. As long as you are in rational control of your movements, he says, zero gravity is the realization of a dream. Now, I like that because imagine me for a moment what a zero sin existence would be like. A sin-free life would be like. Imagine enjoying all your daily life without this constant gravitational tug and pull of evil, without the encumbrances of selfishness that we all have, temptations, ignorance, idolatry, conflict, injustice, greed, power struggles. Imagine a life every day, every moment without fatigue, without frustration, without pain or tears, without sadness or sickness or death or disease. Imagine a world without pandemics, that would be a good one, without scarcity, without loneliness or fear. A world of work you just love to do without any sweat or frustration or toil. And a life of perfect and joyful and intimate relationships. A life of great pleasure. Now, what will heaven be like? In the very last book of the Bible, the Apostle John addresses this question. And with an inspired pen, John amazingly opens our eyes. He stirs our imagination. And yes, he infuses our hearts with joyful hope. So if you have a Bible handy, turn with me to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. Now, as John concludes this letter to the seven first century churches in Revelation 19 through 22, he describes for us in a kind of literary crescendo Three utopian images. Three utopian images. First, the joyful image of a wedding, then a beautiful city, and a loving family. So that's where we're going to flow today as we look at this text. A joyful wedding, a beautiful city, and a loving family. First, a joyful wedding. Now, the image of bride, or a bride, repeatedly surfaces in Revelation chapter 19, 21, and 22. You cannot miss it. In chapter 19, John describes for us this beautiful and joyous wedding celebration and feast. Look at me at verses 7 through 9. He writes, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John writes, Write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, John's portrayal of heaven, first and foremost, as a joyful wedding celebration, I think is both fertile soil for our imagination, and let's just be honest, it is a brisk tailwind heightening our anticipation of that day. Now, I love weddings. I love officiating weddings. And there's something about having a front row seat that allows me to breathe in this fragrance of joy, of love, and beauty. Recently, I had the most amazing joy of officiating the wedding of a young woman who I have watched grow up all her life in a family that Liz and I deeply love and cherish. And I have to say, from the beginning to the end, there was such life-giving joy, it simply hung in the air like a thick fog. And I still find myself savoring the many memories of that treasured day. And isn't it true that in most weddings, all of us are surrounded by and immersed in a kind of multi-sensory joy, right? There's the beauty of the wedding party that we feel, the radiance of the bride, the flowers that we smell and sense, the music that we hear, the decorated wedding venue. There are all the close friends and multi-generational family members together, often that do not get together often. And there is abundant laughter, of course. There's tasty food, some of the best, and drink. And there's storytelling. I love the storytelling of weddings, the toast of love from different people in the wedding party, the slideshows, the videos taking us down memory lane. So many wonderful conversations, tears of joys, dancing, which I'm not very good at, uh, and celebration. And across cultures and time, wherever I've been in the world, I've noticed weddings. Weddings are amazing. They're one of the most amazing, joyous experiences we have in this life. And John plucks this reality and places it at his final crescendo. He reminds us that weddings serve as a kind of appetizer or slice or signpost of heaven. And he gives us a greater window into the very character of our triune God. Now, let me ask you for a moment, just to kind of close your eyes, just for a moment. Now, think about God. What immediately comes into your mind? Now, perhaps it is his unmatched brilliance and power and sovereignty, of course. God's unimaginable perfection, his perfect holiness, his tenderness, his kindness, his love, his goodness, his grace and mercy. These attributes are all true and good. But do you ever think of God as a God who loves sensory, intellectual, artistic, and relational pleasures? Do you ever think of God bursting with laughter, with joy, of delighting in creation and his creatures? Or think of God delighting in you, or of God walking into the room, so to speak, and looking for you with delight in his eyes, of God amazingly and joyfully having celebration in relational intimacy, of God enjoying lingering and loving conversation, and as our young friends and my neighbors describe, yummy birthday cake, playing trumpets and fun stuff. I think they're onto something of God finding pleasure in knowing you and being known by you. See, when we look at the world God originally created, we see in the Garden of Eden that it was a place of incredible beauty, bursting with pleasure, sensory material goodness, safe and security, and an intimate relationship of connection. In his excellent book, The Heaven Promise, Scott McKnight makes the case, and I think really well, that God is a God 
of course, of many things, but a God of great pleasure. And he makes the case that our present pleasures we experience are designed to point us toward heaven. Scott writes this. Listen carefully. God dwells in endless pleasure and happiness and in the deepest joy. Our desire for deep joy comes from God's own deep joy. God is a happy God. God is full of joy. God is all pleasures and designs all pleasures. Our enjoyment of pleasure, he writes, is participating in God's own pleasure. Now, during Advent, we celebrate Jesus coming to this world in his incarnational beauty and holiness and wonder. And it's not incidental that Jesus reflected this truth both in his life and teaching that God is a God of great joy and pleasure. Now, let's remember, Jesus' first recorded miracle was what? It was a, at least recorded, was at a large wedding where in response to Mary's request, Jesus made possible a whole lot more of partying, a whole lot more of wine, or a much longer wedding. And in that custom was literally for the whole community, a long multi-day celebration of joy and pleasure. And in Jesus' teaching, he reminds us of this. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. Now, Jesus' promise of abundant life is more than our experience of pleasure, clearly. But it is not less than that. And let's remember carefully together that the thief, that is the, the evil one, that is Satan, the greatest enemy of our souls, is not only the great deceiver, but also the great joy killer and pleasure distorter. In other words, hear me carefully. Satan not only robs you and me of joy, but he also entices us to counterfeit pleasures that keep us from the greatest pleasures, the truest pleasures, the most pleasurable pleasures that Jesus has for us. Now, choosing the path of satanic counterfeits and pleasure is pleasurable. We know that, at least for a season, of course. Yet when we pursue pleasure outside of God's design, it is like we may think of chasing, right, a desert mirage. Our thirsty souls are tempted to chase it, to reach for it, only to discover in time it is short-lived, fleeting, unsatisfying, and yes, often enslaving. The image of Jesus and his bride emerges again and again in these chapters in Revelation 19 through 21. And here in chapter 21, if you look with me, here in the focus is not just on the wedding celebration, but it begins to be wrapped in the beautiful home Jesus has made for his bride in the New Jerusalem. For example, in verse 2, the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is described, notice if you have your text open, as a bride adorned for her husband. And the text and grammar and energy of the text gives us a sense a great enthusiasm emerges here. A heavenly messenger says to John, notice in verse 9, Come, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Chapter 21 describes more fully again our second image of our heavenly home as a beautiful city. This is the second image, a beautiful city. Now keep the big picture in mind. Let's remember that from the opening chapters of Genesis to the last chapters of Revelation, the thread of continuity suggests that God's creation begins in a pristine garden, but it ends in a beautiful and bustling garden city. Keep that in mind. 
Now, the primary emphasis in Revelation 21 and 22, besides the centrality of God's manifest presence, is a multifaceted, multisensory picture of this stunningly beautiful city. This should excite us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus spoke to his disciples, you remember the night before his crucifixion, he said, I'm going away to prepare a place, a home, a beautiful home for you. And here in Revelation 21 and 22, you and I are given a glimpse of that home. And I want you to notice the description of John is focused on its unspeakable beauty. In chapter 21, there's this whole host of symbolism uh, that is captured in human language. There's a sense, if you look at it, of precious jewels of the highest rarity and value. Perfect architectural foundations and cubic measurements. What's going on here? John is, yes, wetting our appetite, clearly, but he's portraying the beauty, purity, safety, and security and perfection of the city in verses 11 through 21. That's the big idea. And in chapter 21, verses 20 through 22 through 27, you will notice, and I encourage you to look more carefully at this, is that God's manifest and illuminating presence in the city is on display. In fact, it is central. There is no need for a sun or a temple. Look at me at verses 23 through 25. Notice, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. They will bring it into the city. Now, John's words reflect a stark difference with our present world, but also, actually, a lot of similarity. And we have discovered this in our series. There is this continued tension of continuity, discontinuity, similarity and dissimilarity between the now and the future. Twice in these verses, John repeats something that we must not miss. His emphasis is that the idea that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. Now, what does that mean? Glory and honor here most likely alludes to the present crowning cultural artifacts and achievements of our present time and space. Now, imagine with me for a moment one of the most beautiful cities you have ever lived in or visited. I've had the joy of visiting many cities. But what comes into your mind when you think of the most beautiful city or skyline? Perhaps it's beautiful architectural buildings, museums, commerce, sports venues, plays, diversity of cultures, and people walking around, strolling in parks, rivers, oceans, food, restaurants, and recreation. John is leaning into this idea. He's not only looking to the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth, but he's also affirming the importance of our cities in the here and now, in the midst of the already not yet fully arrived kingdom of God. Now, seeking the shalom, as the Bible calls us to from Jeremiah on, of our present world, not only reflects our call to common grace incarnation and gospel proclamation, but your stewardship, my stewardship, to our broader community to exhibit neighborly love, to seek justice, and to foster the flourishing of our cities and our communities. Our work toward the common good 
that we care so deeply about at Christ Community, because the scriptures call us to that, has massive ramifications for the future city that awaits us. We are now participating in bringing a slice of heaven here. We are in our faithfulness and fruitfulness in our vocational energies, fulfilling Jesus' prayer, not fully yet, of course, that thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The images of a large joyful wedding and a bustling joyful city reminds us that heaven is filled with great diversity. People from every tribe and tongue, every nation, every culture with beautiful diversity, redeem image bearers that reflect the glory of God, all becoming a new loving family, the family of God. This is the third image we find in these chapters, a loving family. In chapter 21, verse 4, we read that God will dwell with his people and notice he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I want us to stop there for a moment. We often gloss over that. Some of my earliest memories as a child, I remember when I skidded my knee or I had fallen or gotten hurt, was my mom would reach for me. Right? She would reach for me, she would hold me in her arms, she would console me with her words, and she would wipe away my tears with her hand. It didn't take long for me to stop crying when I was in her arms and when she wiped my tears away. I began to feel a whole lot better. And this is the imagery that John gives us here of our loving God wiping every tear from our eyes. It is a parental, particularly a more feminine metaphor, a motherly metaphor of a mother tenderly wiping tears from a child's eyes. John is giving us this amazing picture of the unconditional, tender, attachment love of a parent for a child. John's familial language is subtly woven into the last two chapters brilliantly around this family imagery. In chapter 21, for example, in verse 7, God declares, I will be his God and he will be my son. See that picture there. And then in chapter 22, verse 4, we see the larger redeemed family of God, the church, the bride of Christ, joyfully serving and worshiping God together. Notice they will see his face and his, uh, his name will be on their foreheads. And then again in verse 5, we read they will reign forever and ever. John gives us a picture here we must not miss. It is a picture of joyful relational intimacy with God, but also with each other in sinless spiritual community. Heaven is not only a place where we are reunited, as wonderful as that is, and enjoy intimate connection with friends and family members who are there ahead of us, but of a broader family, the family of God. John Newton, in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, speaks of our eternal home. And he says, right, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. How glorious that is. And while awesome that is to think about that, we will have an eternity to praise God. It is also true that we will have an eternity to form deeper and more joy-filled relationships with others. I remember a song I learned as a young boy in the church I grew up in. It went like this, and I promise you I won't sing it, but it, here's the words. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. I remember singing that a lot. And at the time, I had no idea how profound these words were. And that is Jesus' desire for each of us, 
that in our present local church spiritual community, we would experience an appetizer, a foretaste of what awaits us one day. Now, Liz and I had an appetizer of this kind of joy-filled Christian fellowship with a handful of other couples from Christ's community and our Christ community family. We spent several days in beautiful Colorado and its mountains. We breathed in the stunning beauty of, yes, the aspen glow of the fall, changing aspen leaves, blue skies. We enjoyed tasty food and drink. We engaged in laughter and lingering conversation. It was a taste of heaven, a taste of what is to come. It was as if heaven visited us on earth. Both Liz and I still talk about this moment. We savor the afterglow. We have a savoring delight of joy-filled fellowships that we've had and will have more one day with them and others in our earthly heavenly home. Above all else, I believe heaven is a place of deep relational connection with God and others. And that makes it a place of extraordinary pleasure. In describing what heaven will be like, John gives us again three utopian images, a joy-filled wedding, a jaw-dropping beautiful city, and a close-knit, loving, caring family. But as we know, we are not there fully yet. So the question John addresses as he closes Revelation is, how do we wait well? How do we wait well now? This is the question that animates John I think, in writing the entire book. There are more motivations, but we see this. As he writes to seven first century churches who are facing difficult times, difficult circumstances, fearfulness, loneliness, struggle, it's also an important question that we conclude our heavenly series today. For all of us, in the first chapter of Revelation, John reminds us that the church, the time is near of Christ's return. And he picks up this theme in the last chapter of Revelation. In fact, it's a primary theme in Revelation 22. Remember, Jesus on the night before his crucifixion said he was going away, but he was going to come back again. So this refrain through the New Testament in our hearts is, Lord, when? When are you coming back? When are you coming back to set the world right? You'll notice here in Revelation 22, and look carefully with me, three times, in proportion and almost like an antiphonal refrain, we hear the words of God. Behold, or surely I am coming soon. Verse 7, 12, and 20. And some, uh, some 2,000 years later, isn't it true we may read these words and wonder why has Jesus waited so long to return in such a messed up world? Now, clearly, God's timing is a mystery to us. The scriptures give us a bit of a hint, perhaps, that 1,000 years is like a day to God, just like that. That there's a different sense of his understanding of time. Difference in timing may help us put things in perspective, but I think we are also wise to consider God's great love for fallen humanity. The scriptures tell us that God desires none to perish, but in repentance and faith to embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord and experience the life God has for them now and forever. God desires all of us to experience His redeeming grace, His intimate love, and to spend eternity with Him. I think that's God's greatest desire. Jesus also describes the day of his return as something that someday he will come, but it will take many of us by surprise. He tells stories and parables about that. It is a day that we will not expect. So Jesus encourages us to be ready and to wait well for him. And here in the closing verses of Revelation, the last words of the Bible, 
we find attached to three repetitions of Jesus coming soon reminders for us how to wait well. How do we wait well? Three reminders. First, happiness is found in obedience. In verse 7, we read, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The word blessed, y'all, is a word that describes human happiness. And here we're reminded that in waiting well, we can find happiness now. Yes, not fully what we will, but great happiness has also come now to our earthly heavenly home. Happiness is available to us now, and it is an experience and intimacy that flows from apprenticeship with Jesus in wholehearted obedience to him and his word. John says in John 14, 21, or Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. I want us to grasp that there's a connection between obedience, intimacy, and happiness. They are connected together. In his brilliant work, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard puts it this way. Listen carefully. The damage done to our practical faith in Christ and his government at hand by confusing heaven with a place in distant or outer space, even beyond space, is incalculable. Of course God is there too, he writes. But instead of heaven and God also being always present with us, as Jesus shows them to be, we invariably take them to be located far away and most likely at a much later time, not here and now. And then he writes, and we should be surprised to feel ourselves alone. We are never alone. And those who wait well now experience Jesus now, and they obey him now. Happiness is found in obedience. This is what John reminds us in Revelation 22. Waiting well means obeying well. Secondly, we also find that John says right living is rewarding and rewarded. The second repetition here in the text is verse 12. Again, we hear the refrain, behold, I'm coming soon. Notice, behold, I'm coming soon, verse 12, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Now, Jesus here is a, giving us a reminder of the reality of judgment. There is judgment for wrongdoing. But it is also a reminder of rewards for right doing. And verses 14 and 15, you'll notice, contrast godly living with ungodly living. In the areas of proper worship, notice sexual purity, affirming the sanctity of life, and honesty. Those are in the text. Living our daily lives increasingly consistent with the teaching of Holy Scripture does not in any way merit our right standing before God. We don't earn our salvation in any way. Jesus has done that for us. But right living is rewarding, and it forms us into greater Christ-likeness of life. Our spiritual formation, your spiritual formation, prepares you for Jesus' return and for living fully in his earthly, heavenly home. Our spiritual formation practices... Train us now for reigning with him later. Notice in verse 5 the emphasis on reigning with Jesus. We will reign with Jesus forever and ever. Now is the time to train for that. Waiting well means taking seriously the stewardship of our spiritual formation into Christ-likeness of life. So John reminds us, as we wait with anticipation and hope, he says, first, happiness is found in obedience now. Right living is rewarding. And notice how the Bible ends. 
Notice how John ends Revelation, and that's the third reminder. And that is that grace is always available. How I love this. How the Bible ends, how John ends his revelation. Look with me at the two closing verses of the book of Revelation, 22, 20 through 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. As John closes, he reminds his readers once again, Jesus is coming soon. He will come soon. And notice that he closes his words with words of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. At the end of the day, waiting well means we are not only saved by grace, how hallelujah that is, we are sustained moment by moment by grace. And that grace of our Lord Jesus is available to you and me in every hour and every circumstance we face, every moment. We live and breathe on the grace of God. Those who wait well now, obey well now. Those who wait well now, live well now. And those who wait well now, experience grace well now. Think about this. The amazing good news of the Christian faith of the gospel is stunning. Think about this. We rejected God as our king and became enslaved by sin. We ruined the perfect garden. God built us a beautiful city. We cheated on him. He married us, and we became his bride anyway. We hid from him, ran away from him. He pursued us, found us, and adopted us into his beautiful family. What amazingly good news. And during this Advent season, we have been reminded of this good news story, haven't we? Of Jesus born in a manger, dying on a cross, raising to new life, and his promise that he will one day, perhaps soon, return. And with the church triumphant and that great cloud of witnesses, we wait in this already but not fully yet moment we call time of Jesus' kingdom to fully come. And with joyful hearts, expectant hearts, we declare with God's family all across the world, the church universal and church triumphant, Christ has come. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And he will come again, perhaps soon.